Would you all please stand for the reading of God's word? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you again, Liz. Thank you, Alan. Yeah. For for anyone visiting here and saying, I've never seen a church applaud for scripture as much as that. (laughs) I've got to tell you what's happening. Um, if you're visiting, I'm Pastor Greg Waybright. I'm the senior pastor here. I've really gone through a tremendous time, a hard time of dealing with cancer, and I've been away, and now I'm back home, and I'm so happy to be here. I can't tell you how glad I am to be with you. Um, it, it has been quite It has been an unbelievable journey, but now that the uh, operation has taken place, I've got to tell you, there was was no uh, surgery, uh, there was no radiation, no chemo, the the cancer was dealt with by uh, ultrasound heat, this may sound unusual for some of you, they targeted the cancer, they, they focused the heat right on the cancer cells and it just sort of dissolved them. Just before I went in, they said, now let's cook him, that's what they said as I went in. And so here I stand before you, and I just got to tell you, there's no more cancer. There's no, there's no pain. Um, uh, no complications, and as far as I know, no, no side effects. And um, I, I've wondered what I wanted to share with you. I, I just want to tell you that when you go through a time like this, and you have all gone through them, um, I would never, never, never choose to go through this. There are really some yucky parts of it. I would never choose to go through this. But now that I've come through it and I'm here with you again, 
what happened in my walk with the Lord is something that I would never give up for anything, for anything. We think about this, but, but my experience of God's presence and of God's guidance, even though I've been a believer for so long, was so real and so deep and so fresh that I would never give that up. You know what it felt like? It felt like sort of riding on the wave uh, of God's presence and grace and really on the wave of your love and prayers. I'm so thankful for your uh, prayers, for your many uh, notes, emails, uh, Facebook messages. I, I tell you, I feel so loved. I hope everyone here might feel what I do, but I am just so grateful to be back with you today and to get to talk about this topic. I'm going to talk to you about the grace of God. Okay, again, for those of you who are just visiting with us, you might see, and I think if we, you perhaps saw up here before, that we're in a series that we're calling The Five Solas, and you might have thought, what on earth is that about? Not solos. These are solas. It's a, it's a, a Latin word for only and alone. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Chuck Hunt, as he began this series of messages, brought a really a, a wonderful message that said, what we're doing is remembering back to 500 years ago. It's something to be celebrated when it seemed like the church then as a whole was moving away from the, the heart of the message that is found in Scripture. And they called back, it was called a reformation, a, a, a reforming, called people back to the things that are at the very heart of the Scriptures. Uh, there were a group of men and women that were raised up. We usually only hear about the men, but really there were a lot of women who were involved in this as well. And many of them who held different kinds of views, but certain things as people look back on that time, held them together. They, they have sort of become the pillars of the things that every church should be founded on. And we're been, we've been looking at those. The first one Pastor Chuck Hunt talked about was sola scriptura. Uh, scripture alone. That when we ask the question in our lives and in our church, what is the final authority for what we believe and how we live? We say it is this word, it is the Bible. Then last week, in what I felt was a very clear message, Pastor Tim Peck talked about sola fide, only by faith, the only way that you and I can have our sins forgiven and be made alive to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Now, now today, I, I didn't know if I'd be able to come and preach with you, but I so much wanted to. I, this is the one I wanted to preach about, sola gratia, only by the grace of God of God, only by the grace of God. I feel like I've been experiencing God's grace. I'll just, just got to tell you that. So I'll try to keep it concise though. Um, and the text that we look at, the one that uh, Alan and Liz have read for us is really all about that. It started, as Alan said uh, rightly, for some pretty stern words, the mess that we were in, and then the rest of it is all permeated by this message of the grace of God. Did you notice it? If you didn't, let me just show it to you. Chapter two, verse five. By grace, you have been saved. Uh, if you miss it, verse 7, all of this that God does is to demonstrate the incomparable riches of his grace that are expressed to us in the kindness of Jesus Christ. And then if we've really missed it, we've been sleeping through the whole thing. Verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved. So we're going to talk about grace. Now maybe you think the way that I sort of thought, oh good, Grace is such a wonderful thing. It's a safe topic. There will be no conviction in this at all. 
Well, then I started reading this text, and I see that it began by, by Paul saying, remember there was a way we used to live before we met Jesus. And so it's not a way we're supposed to live now. And then at the end, it says, but now we've become God's workmanship. Our lives are to be different, recreated in Christ Jesus. So something has to change. And grace is the thing that is to bring it about. So I want to tell you right now, I've thought about this so much as I thought about speaking to you, because I know that so many of us go to church and we sing these wonderful songs about grace and sometimes I feel like it's almost ho-hum and we open up the word and we read this text about grace and the sermon goes and we think, when will this be over and I can go watch the football game? And I I just deeply think that if that is your, your experience, that you may never have truly experienced the depths of the grace of God. And I've been praying that today, whatever I say, it might help you to have a fresh experience of it because it it will thrill your soul and change your life. So I think we need to start by just asking that question, what is God's grace about? What is it? And I think I have a slide here for you to see. I, I put it together. So it's a free gift because grace is always about a free gift. But God's grace is, is one that you can't live without. And number two... Though you can't live without it, you can't get it on your own. So did you notice verse 8, it says this is a gift from God. Now think about it. You've gotten a lot of gifts in your life, I'm hoping. And a, a gift is always something that is give, it's given to you. You don't have to buy it, right? Somebody else has gotten it for you. Now I know that there are some advertisements that say you can get this gift of 10% off on aluminum siding. That's not really a gift. That's, they're just trying to get you to buy something. But a real gift is, is something that is given to you that is free. Now, now when I thought about God's gift, I, I put it this way. So his gift is, um, is mercy, not merit. So uh, for any of you who have come from Eastern backgrounds, uh, there is karma that so many people believe in. And in karma, you get what you deserve. In other words, if you live in a certain way now, you're going to come back in the next life as a cockroach or hopefully you want to be a cow or or something like that. Grace is the opposite of karma. Um, You're with me here. It is getting what you don't deserve and just as good not getting what you and I do deserve. (laughs) That's what God's grace is about. Grace is fundamentally, and I've thought about this as I've been experiencing it in a new way, it's God's uncoerced initiative. I mean, I didn't have to twist his arm to bless me. It's his extravagant demonstration of care and favor that are offered not just to the pastor, but to all people. And it's access through faith in Jesus. Now, there's something different about this gift that God is willing to give from other gifts. I mean, there are gifts and there are gifts, right? I mean, there are some gifts that you get that they really change your life, and there are many other gifts, most other gifts, they don't really change your life. So, you know, at Christmas or a birthday, you get a gift, you get socks or, or a video game or maybe a porcelain cow that you can put up on the, the shelf or something like that. And those are not life-transforming gifts. So I've been asking, what is it about God's gift of grace that is life-transforming? And that's where these two things that I've written for you come about. Number one, I think a life-transforming gift, number one, is something that you cannot live without. You you can't survive without it. You can't really find your life without it. And, And number two, even though you have to have it to really live, you don't have the resources to get it on your own. You can't access it. 
So you need help from someone else to do it. And I feel like it's those two things that the Apostle Paul has taken up in this text to talk to us about the enormity and beauty of the grace of God. So can I show it to you? Uh, The first three verses are saying to us, we cannot live, I mean really live, without God's grace. As for you, you were dead. What a way to open. Uh, when, you know, we all know that we human beings have problems, right? I mean, if, if we're honest, when we come to church, we say our life is not yet all that it should be. Amen? Can, can I have a witness about that? And yet when we try to assess what the problem that we have, what that might be, here in Southern California, we, we sort of always put it into this sort of um, uh, sickness mode, we, we, it can be a moral sickness or a physical sickness or an emotional, uh, mental sickness. And the idea is we, we just need some help from a doctor or from a therapist or, or from someone else. And there are degrees uh, of sickness, so that, that, um, but we can go get help for that. Uh, what, it's what I did when I found out I, I had cancer. I needed to go to a doctor who could help me, but I had to go. I could access this by doing it by something myself. If it's an emotional or a relational problem, we might go and, and get some therapy. If the problem's not too bad, we might just say, well, I've got to have a better diet, go get a little bit more sleep, and I'll be fine. In all of those situations... If it's a sickness, sort of a, a model that we have for what's wrong with us, we, we feel like there's something we can do to make ourselves better. We can take some medicine. We can go to the doctor. Um, it's not that way if you're dead. <laughs> Margaret, you can't do anything about this. And, and there are no degrees of deadness. There are no dead people who are more dead than other dead people which makes me think of an illustration that almost every pastor in America has used and I have used as well, but I'm going to use it again anyway. There is a movie that was made that I know the filmmakers, who were not necessarily Christians, never would think that a pastor would use this as a sermon illustration, but it is such a perfect one that they have. The movie is Princess Bride. You already knew, didn't you? And it's that section when the two friends bring Wesley in and they think something's wrong with him, that, that he's dead, to miracle Max. Well, just, I don't, one minute of this is all we're going to look at. I want you to see it because I think this is going to cement this in your mind. And then I'm going to come back and drive this home to you from, from the Word. Yeah. Sir? Huh? We're in a terrible rush. Don't rush me, Sonny. You rush a miracle, man, you get rotten miracles. You got money? 65. I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. This is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. Children are on the brink of starvation. You a rotten liar. I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cram? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. 
I tell you, Paul's word gets at this thing because we know there isn't a difference between mostly dead and, and all dead so that if you're all dead, you can only go through a person's pockets and get loose change. We know that there is no medicine, no therapy that can help us if we're dead. What do we need if we're dead? We need a resurrection. And we have a lot of doctors in our church. There's no medical school in America that teach you how to do one of those. So the Bible's verdict is if something's wrong, what is really wrong is that, that you are dead. Now, the, here's the problem, especially if you're new to church. Um, when you come to church, you don't feel like you're all dead. I mean, just look, you sit there, Pastor Greg, what on earth are you talking about? Here I am, I'm alive. And some of you do seem more alive than others seem to, <laughs> to me to be. But the Bible tells us from beginning to end, from beginning to end, that uh, there are two kinds of life and there are two kinds of death. Uh, there is physical life. Uh, but we all know this. We have a lot of moms in our church. Whenever your, your, your child is born, if everything is functioning, you become alive to this physical world. Uh, your child is able to see uh, what is in this world, able to hear, able to begin to smell and, and to taste what is there. There is a life to this physical world. But what the Bible says is that this physical world is not all that there is. I mean, all of us as human beings intuitively know that there has to be more than just physical things in this world. And it says that that is the reality, that when we are born, because of the sin that is in this world and also that we engage in, that we are dead to that reality. It is real. There is a spiritual realm. And, and the biggest thing here is there is a God. Uh, you go out there and you talk with people, and most people inside think, yes, I believe that there is a God, but inside they don't know God. They're, they're not alive to God. They don't walk with him. Now, here's the message of the Bible. Um, you and I, made in the image of God, cannot really find our lives just in material, physical things. We've been made for more than that. But if we're dead to that, if we've been made to know God, to have God at the center of our being and we're dead to him, I mean, how on earth can we come alive to him? And that's why, if you understand what I'm talking about here, are you with me? Then you come to verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, and you see the way we are as human beings, the way we were before we came to Christ, and the way that the rest of the world is. Then we really want to live well. I don't know of anybody who gets up in the morning and says, I hope I have a rotten day today. We all want to live well and have joy in our lives, but if the only way we can really have life is to have God at the center of our beings and we're dead to him, where are we going to find it? So we have all of us as human beings, knowing that we've been made for more than we've experienced, trying to find it is, verse 2, the ways of the world, thinking there must be something more here that I can do and experience that will give me life, or the cravings of your own flesh. You just, you think, where am I going to find this life? Well, maybe if I eat more. Maybe if I make more money. Maybe if I have a different wife or a girlfriend or husband. Maybe if I could get different parents. I mean, you think of all of these things and sometimes it takes you into the direction of maybe I just need to drink more or have more drugs or whatever. But all of that, even though in church we can criticize people outside who are looking for their lives in all sorts of wrong places, we shouldn't. Because Paul says, all of you, <laughs> apart from something being done for you, you'd be in that same place. 
So if there's anyone who should be empathetic about the situations that we see in people in our world, and Paul sums it up in verse 3. Put it here just to look, look at it so you won't miss it. All of us, all of us, who's in the all? All right, you're more responsive than 9 o'clock was. All of us also lived among them at one time. We lived the same way, just gratifying the cravings of our flesh, thinking we'd find life there, following those desires and thoughts. I mean, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, leaving God out of our lives, engaging in things that even by our own standards are wrong. You see, so we're dead to that. We can't really live apart from coming alive to God. Where is there any hope? We are without hope in this world. We're in danger. We're not ready to meet a holy God. Being dead, we can't do anything for ourselves. Have you ever noticed dead things can't make themselves alive? <laughs> we need someone to do something for us. So there is something we need that we can't get. And then the second point, where can we afford what we cannot afford on our own? And those are these beautiful verses, verses 4 through 7. I put up a little part of it. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. I, I don't know if you were listening as Liz read. Verses 4 through 7 are some of the most beautiful and moving verses in the entire Bible about all that God has done for us that we don't really deserve. I want you to not to miss the reason why God has done it. It's in verse 4. I'll put it here. Because of his great love for us. Anybody else like that? Don't you, sometimes, oh, so don't you sometimes come to church? And I know sometimes people in the world look at church people and they think they don't love us, they only look down on us. But that, I'll tell you this, if that's true, the God that we say is our God loves them. <laughs> I never want you to come to Lake Avenue Church without hearing that whatever is in your past, uh, whatever things you bring with you, uh, whatever you have thought about this past week even, that when you come to this church, I want you to know this, God knows, he knows you, and he loves you. God loves you with an everlasting love, and he is ready to give you something that you don't deserve. It's what is called grace. It, it's a beautiful thing. Don't leave without knowing that. Um, what I want you to see here is the way the Apostle Paul wrote about how costly it was for God to give us what we need, a new life. Because even though it comes to us as a free gift, it was costly to God. And there are three phrases. Please notice them. Do you have your Bible? Verse 5, three phrases. They're parallel. God made us alive with Christ. We were dead to him. When we place our faith in Christ, we are born again. We come to know God. Uh, two, verse six, God raised us up with Christ. What, what he's saying there, you can imagine, I was in a casket dead, and now he makes me alive, but he doesn't leave me there in the casket. He raises me up so that my life won't be the way it was before, but actually raised it up with Christ. He promises that our lives are going to become like those of Jesus, conformed to his image, um, uh, uh, viewing people, loving people the way that Jesus did, raised us up to live that way. Verse 7, not only that, God seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. 
we have an eternal place alongside Jesus in heaven. Now, there are two things you got to notice about this. First, uh, that each one of them happens with Christ. Did you notice that? Made alive with Christ. Raised up with Christ. Seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What it's saying is this, that when you place your faith in Jesus, there is a union between you and Jesus that happens. This is hard to understand. I'll just tell you it's real. I've experienced it. That he gives you his spirit who dwells within you and you no longer have to try to do this on your own. In fact, you have the very presence of the Son of God who defeated sin and death by his resurrection alongside of you. You are united with Christ. It all happens in union with him. You got that? The second thing I want you to notice is this, that all of those things that God does, he put them in the past tense. He made you alive with Christ. Now, you can understand that. You said, well, I was dead to Christ, but now that I believe in Jesus, now I'm alive to him. And you should be able to know if that's happened because it changes a lot of stuff. It means that when we sing songs like about the grace of God, it's no longer ho-hum for you anymore. You've experienced the grace of God, so singing about the amazing grace, well, you're alive to it. And you sing better than you've ever sung, at least louder than you've ever sung. And, uh, and, and, and even listening to a sermon should be different. That's the same Pastor Greg I heard last week, but now it seems like, well, it seems like God's speaking to me if I'm faithful to the word. You see, if that's not happening in you, I wonder if you've experienced God's grace. Or maybe I'm not preaching well, but if I'm faithful to the word, that should be happening to you right now. And, and, but the last one, um, and th th no, but the second one, that he raised you up with Christ in the past tense, which means that he's raised you up to live the way that Jesus lived. Well, that hasn't hap happened fully with any of us, right? Do you agree? I mean, you're not yet all that God has made you to be. And yet it's put here in the past tense. And especially the third one there in verse 7. God seated you in heaven with Christ. Well, you're here. You're not there. And yet you see what, Jesus, what God is saying. He's saying when you receive Christ into your life, you are so united with Christ that all of those promises are as real as if they have already happened. And he's promising to you and me that even in those times when we wonder if God will ever finish us, we failed yet again, that what God has started in you and me, he will complete it. Can I have an amen or a hallelujah? I got one amen. I mean, that, this is good news. This is good news that I need to hear again and again and again. Now, I know this is difficult to understand fully, even though it is wonderful. <laughs> but let me try to boil it down so I've written it for you. The moment you believe in Jesus, you become united with him and indwelt by his spirit. What this means is that everything that Jesus has done and everything that Jesus deserves becomes yours. You are as loved and as accepted by God as Jesus' actions deserve. So that your sins are gone now. Your future as one fully complete in Christ in heaven is absolutely assured. Hallelujah. But there is a flip side to this. There's another side, one implication that gets us into this text. You've got to know this. If you are so united with Christ that you get everything that he deserves, then he had to be willing to be so united with you that he got everything that you deserve. He bore your sins in his body 
on the cross. Is that costly? Are you thankful? It's all summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You might want to just mark it, highlight it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could never afford that. You couldn't earn this on your own. We've already fallen short. And Ephesians 2 sums this up twice by simply saying, you are saved by God's grace. You are saved by God's grace. It is sola gratia, only by the grace of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So, oh. I hope you're willing to stick with me just a few more minutes because now we've got to bring this thing home. Uh, what this means is, for, as I look at it, Paul says, this is what it means to us as a community and to you as an individual, that we cannot experience God's grace and remain the same. If you've really experienced the grace of God, it will change your life. So that he ends the section by saying, because we become God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to, to at last begin to do the good works that we had always been created in advance for us to do. So do you, you remember I told you that Ephesians 2 begins with the statement of there was a way you used to live before Christ and it ends by this statement is now there is a way you're going to live when God is done with you. It's a, and, and, and it says because we're his handiwork, my translation says, Many of you know that the word that the Apostle Paul used in his language is a word poema. It's the root word for our word poem. For all of you who are writers, it's like God is writing what he is like through us as he's recreating us. For all of you who are artists, it's this idea that the masterpiece that God is doing is us. And particularly for us as a church, it is just one beautiful thing. And the instrument that God uses to take us from where we are to where we will be is his grace. And what he says we're going to be is raised up with Christ, which means our lives should reflect that of Jesus. We should see people as Jesus sees people. We should live, our moral choices should be like his. And none of us are there yet, so we keep wondering, how is grace going to get me from where I am now? I go home and do the same old stuff to where he's going to promise me to be. And here, here's what I think is the key. Here it is. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should. Uh -huh. Lest boast. All right. Blouter. All right. Here's, here's what I believe that the fundamental change that grace brings about in us, the thing that redirects everything else about us, is that it takes away any boasting. Those of us who know that our salvation required the death of the sinless Son of God can no longer be proud, which means we can't direct our own lives. We know we need Him. It means we can't look down on other people because we are in the same place anybody else is. I've got to tell you this, the, the thing that led to the Apostle Paul writing this section is that in the church to which he was writing in Ephesus, there were people coming to faith in Jesus, coming alive to God. There were both Jewish people and non-Jewish people called Gentiles. And when they came alive to God, they, they celebrated being in the family of God and knowing God as their father. But the problem was they didn't want to be in one church together. 
because they looked down on one another. They despised one another. Uh, the Jewish people despised the Gentiles because of the way they lived. Oh, they get into all that sexual immorality and all that stuff that they are doing. They, they despise them because they didn't live according to... And after all, we are the people of God and they aren't. But you know, the Gentiles despised the Jewish people at least as much. And, and do you know why? Because anti-Semitism has gone on for centuries there's been a hatred of the Jewish people. For so here are these two people who despise one another now coming into one family and they didn't want to worship with one another. Now I can just imagine if that happened here in 21st century Southern California, someone would come and say, now for church growth, here's what you have to do. The solution to this problem is easy. Have two churches. You can have a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over here. Did you see the Apostle Paul said that that's what we should do? Read through the rest of this chapter and you're going to say that's not what we're supposed to do. There is one household of God. There is one people of God. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one God and Father over all. So, the Apostle Paul, we're going to be here all day if I keep going like this. Okay, the Apostle Paul said the solution to this is not hard, but it's not having two churches. The solution to this is that each one of us must have a fresh experience of God's grace. Because if you and I experience God's grace, we can never, we can never look down on anyone. And we will simply rejoice when we are there together with other recipients of grace that we have the privilege of worshiping with them. And I thank God for this privilege of worshiping with you, my mercy-needing, <laughs> grace-needing family. And that wasn't just the Apostle Paul's church. I, we told you 500 years we've been celebrating this thing. 400 years ago, there was an English reformer, a pastor. His, his name uh, is, uh, oh, no, my mind is blanking, uh, is Thomas Brooks. <laughs> I have his picture up here, and I have his... Uh, uh, one of the books I want you to tell you about. We've been sort of debating here which one of the pastors at Lake Avenue Church does he most look like. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pastor Mark, it wasn't you. You didn't rise to the top uh, uh, of that one. Um, Pastor Brooks and his church. It was in England in the 1700s. Uh, and the problem in there was they were divided by socioeconomic things. Some of you understand this. If you watch BBC shows like Poldark or Downton Abbey uh, through the centuries, you understand this. Some of you are nodding, you, you know. So you had the poor class that were just put down by people. You had the emerging middle class where they were starting to get some wealth, the merchants who were there. And then you had the long-standing upper class who inherited all of their money. They were like in Paul's church, they were all coming to church across all the, coming to faith in Jesus across all those divides and coming into Pastor Brooks' church. So he wrote, put that back up there. I want you to see the title of that book. He wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I like that title a lot. A lot. Uh, because he said he feels like this division that was there was Satan's device. And um, what he saw was the poor despised the middle class and the wealthy and they argued that the only reason they were poor was that the middle class and the wealthy abused them and dealt with them unjustly and kept them poor. Does it sound like in our, in our own day? Then, then the middle class, 
They despise both the poor and the rich. The poor they despise because they say, you're only poor because you don't work as hard as we do. And the rich, they say, you're only rich because you inherited that. You're lazy. So, and the rich despise both groups because they th feel like they're unrefined and even if they had money, they wouldn't use it well. You know what Pastor Brooks did? He did what I'm trying to do today, what the apostle, he went to Ephesians chapter 2. He said, the only solution to this is a fresh experience of God's grace. That when you've really experienced the grace of God and said, I can't believe, Lord, that you would forgive me, remake me, we can look down on no one else. My brothers and sisters, I feel like we need a precious remedies against Satan's devices for our day. Anybody agree with me? I mean... I look at those things that make it so hard for us to be a church community. I see the divisions of ages. You know, here we have a baby boomer pastor and you have millennials. You know, how are we going to be in one church together? We just think about the world in different ways. I'm this linear thinker, one, two, three, four. How is this going to happen? We come into a church in which we have, a, we're in a community where we have immigrants and citizens. Divided, how is this going? How are we going to have a church made up both of Republicans and Democrats? How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? Rich and poor, all the racial divisions that keep raising their ugly heads, they have not gone away. How will they ever be reconciled? Should we form different churches so we can just be comfortable with one another? Or are we people who are going to be humbled? by the grace of God. The thing, thing I feel like is characteristic of us so often is we kind of look over there at other people and say, like that Pharisee did in Jesus' story, I'm glad I'm not like that other person over there. And when that happens, it will always keep us divided. Because you see what happens, boasting, boasting, boasting. We look down on people. We look down on people. We look down on people. But once you have actually been met by the grace of God and known that I was dead and have only been made alive because of the death and resurrection of Christ, you know that I cannot look down at anyone, but instead from my knees, I can only look up at the only one who could boast, who lived the life that we should live, but we haven't. And who is God's word said, though he was in very nature God, Philippians chapter 2, he didn't consider that something that he would hold over our heads. He became a servant for us, even to the point of dying for us, and told us to have that same mind toward one another that he had. Oh, my brother and sister, you can tell. You feel how deeply I feel. We need a fresh experience of the grace of God. God's grace is God's instrument to remake you into his work of art. Um, when you experience God's grace, it spells the end of boasting. Do you see that? You can't, you can't think I'm better than. It spells the end of bitterness too. You're not angry that you don't have that, that the other person has. It, it spells the end. Grace spells the end of fearing that somebody else is going to get ahead of you. Experiencing grace ends perfectionism. Worrying that you can't measure up to what your parents thought. Because you, God has made you measure up to what he cares about, and that's what really matters. 
And, and mostly it spells the end to looking down on other people because they're not good enough. So I've just got to ask you, do you feel like your life is being changed by grace? Uh, have you brought your sins to God and say, here they are, you want them, and have him say, I'll take them and cast them as far as east is from the west. If you've come today really burdened down, did you hear the song we sang just before I preached? Lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. Lay down whatever is wrong and gratefully, humbly, joyfully, Receive the grace of God. I feel like I've experienced it in new ways these days. I've been praying that you will as well. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and that not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not of works, lest any one of us should boast. At the heart of everything you and I believe is sola gratia. It is only by God's grace, and it will be to his glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.